imagination about about dharamsala and how uh, you know dharamsala's political capital and how it's connected with the rest of the Tibetan refugees. <laughs> we'll put up such a so you look at my resume, everything has to do with, uh, uh, with, with Tibetan issue or Tibetan struggle. So now I see many campaigns among the Tibetans in exile talking about uh, more parliamentary reforms, structural reforms in the, in the, in the exile Tibetan democracy setup. A mixed uh, vegetable in the, in the, in the uh, you know, you, you, in the Momo, like in, you have put vegetable as well, you know, <laughs> mixed with me. So I used to, when I seek leave on March 10 from my uh, manager, you know, I used to text them saying that uh, this is the day I lost my father. <laughs> she, 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 she took it very personally. And then I explained her the reason. You know, China, get out of Tibet. You know, in unison, you know. It was wonderful to hear. And then in the streets, it was nice. Normally, you know, nobody talks about uh, Tibetan freedom, right? But then the moment, you know, the, somebody tries to write a serious article or a poem, or if somebody displaces only the Dalai Lama's, Dalai Lama's picture, you'll be, you know, cracked down. Whether it's in settlements or everywhere in, in Toronto. People are very creative, you know. Mm. It's just that their voices are not being sort of uh, represented. Unsilenced Voices of Young Tibetans is a podcast presented by the Foundation for Nonviolent Alternatives where young Tibetans share their personal stories, experiences, opinions and journey in exile. Namaste and welcome to our FNBA podcast, Unsilenced Voices of Young Tibetans. In today's episode, we will discuss Tibet, the Tibet Freedom Movement, the Tibet Uprising Day and the exile Tibetan democracy through the lens of a researcher and a Tibetan who has worked for many sons at Dharamsala and has a key knowledge of the exiled Tibetan community. Many young Tibetans view our guest as one of the best young Tibetan resource person out there. He's taken part and led various seminars, sessions, and has also written on a plethora of subjects on Tibet and Tibetans. So without any further ado, I welcome to our show, our guest, Enzi Nyingchala. Thank you, Alhamdulillah. Thanks, thanks for having me. <clears throat> so, Ninjala, before we start with our, you know, serious topics, like, could you introduce yourself to our audience? Oh, yes, yes. I, uh, I was born in a uh, Tibetan settlement uh, in Orissa uh, in 1978, but I don't know when I was exactly born. My mom said it was like a heavy, you know, sort of, sort of like rainfall at the time, probably maybe in June, I guess. So... <clears throat> That's where I was born, and uh, I finished my, uh, you know, primary and, and secondary education in the Tibetan Refugee School in in Orsa itself, and then I moved to for the first time outside my village, you know, <laughs> to to Simla. You know, you probably you know there's another refugee uh, school in Simla, where for the yep. first time I saw the snows, you know, <laughs> for my uh, higher education, uh, high school, like. Uh, grade 11 and 12. And then I had a chance to uh, go to uh, Delhi University for my undergrad studies. Where I did my BA in political science at the Ramjas College. Probably you know, you're from TU. Uh, and then I was uh, jobless. Uh, you know, sort of uh, stuck in a limbo for a year in Delhi. And then 2001, I moved to uh, the Tibetan uh, college uh, in Sara, you know, near Dharamsala, where I studied Tibetan for three years. 
and then I moved to uh, to to Kanki. You know, I started working in the in the uh, Department of Info Information. I worked there for four or five years, and then again I moved on to the Library of Tibetan Works and Archives for two years, and then I moved to the United States for studies, and then I came back to India again, worked in the Kashak for a year, and then another four or five years in the Center for Human Rights and Democracy. And that was in uh, up to I think uh, 2016, and then then I moved back to, uh, to to North America, and since 2016 I've been in Canada. So that's that's uh, roughly my sort of biography. Definitely, a very interesting journey from the humble beginnings from Urissa to you know to the first a major city called Shimla, and yeah. eventually to Delhi, and you know. Eventually, at the end of the day, you reach the political capital of the Tibetan exile community at Dharamsala, where you spent a number of years, a fruitful years, I would say. Yeah. So thank you for this, you know, very nice introduction. And I think a lot of Tibetans also undergo this journey, like how they start from a village. Like even someone like me, I was born in Uti. Like it's like a small Tibetan community is there. Gradually, you go to the cities and eventually you work for your Tibetan community. So you mentioned how, you know, you grew up in India and, you know, growing up in India as an exiled Tibetan community and as a refugee, were there any eureka moments that came across you while growing up? And is there something that you would share with us? I don't know. I, I don't know what eureka actually is, to be honest. I know what it means, but uh, in the Tibetan context, you know, <laughs> eurekas are not like supposed to be part parts of our culture, but I don't know what you're saying. But, uh, you know, I mean, okay, I, I can call this as a Eureka. When I was a little kid uh, in, in Orissa, I was good in Tibetan language. So uh, we used to receive one sort of a literary magazine. It's more of a comic uh, magazine in Tibetan, published by the Department of uh, Education in Dharamsala. And uh, it has like features, uh, news stories, you know, some, some like, and then it has a cartoon sort of a beautiful cartoon story. And in that story, I read about uh, a little sort of um, story about one uh, Tibetan woman from South India visiting Dharamsala for the first time and going to a Momo restaurant. So the story goes is that, you know, uh, the Momo restaurant was like full of people, lots of crowd out there. And then when she comes to the restaurant, she doesn't get a proper seat. And at the end of the story, uh, the, the, the restaurant owner actually apologizes to her, saying that uh, Dharamsala is a very uh, busy place. That's why uh, we couldn't offer you a proper seat. And the lady sort of shoots back and saying that, yeah, yeah, yeah Dharamsala is so busy, so busy that you have uh, a mixed uh, vegetable in the, in the, in the uh, you know, you, you, in the momo, like in, you have put vegetable as well, you know, <laughs> mixed with meat. So that story was sort of like a eureka moment, if you call it, because that just gave me this fascinating uh, imagination about about Dharamsala and how uh, you know Dharamsala's political capital and how it's connected with uh, the rest of the Tibetan refugees. So yeah, I mean these sort of like stories, you, probably you can call it uh, eureka moments. And I had other stories that I read in the in the Tibetan historical text, which were like quite uh, fascinating. And then these days I keep on having eureka moments all the time. <laughs> you any one of them like would you like yeah. to share like since you have a lot of recurrence of these eureka moments like. <laughs> you know until i mean like, until you realize as a tibetan you know you don't take it seriously right I mean, yeah. 
happens. But you're right. It's very important to have this kind of like exciting moment you know, in life. Probably that's the first sort of Yorker moment in my life, you can call it, to be honest. And by any chance, was that magazine the one that they call Payul? Like, even when yeah, I was exactly. small, I remember that one. Like, at the end of the thing, and I think the magazine cover was also pretty good in quality, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we as kids, we like the colored things. And at the end of the thing, yeah, as you mentioned, they had these cartoons. And an interesting thing, there was also a pen pal section, if I'm not wrong. Um, probably, I, I don't remember, though. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, but yeah, Ben Paul was a big, big phenomenon uh, during our school yep. days. Yeah. Mm. yeah, some of the kids used to have pen pals with other kids from other areas. And mm. I found it very fascinating. I was very jealous of them because yep. I couldn't do so. You know? Yeah, I think, you know, yeah, I share the same sentiments, you know, <laughs> like even I couldn't get any. <laughs> So yeah, Ningsla, and uh, moving on, like you've also mentioned how since 2016 you have been settled in North America, in particular Canada, I must assume. So for the past few years, could you find any sort of difference between living in Canada and living in India? Um, yeah, a lot of difference, to be honest, and but but it's also like uh, very much same in the sense that I, I can tell you about the differences. The fact that uh, here, you know, people I live in a city in Toronto. Right? It's a big urban city. Whereas in India, obviously I was living in Dhamsala, a very small hill town, right? You can see beautiful mountains and, 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 and clean air. But here, you know, it's, as you said, as I said, it's town. So you'll see railways, you'll see aeroplanes, you'll see cars moving past. And here also it's very uh, sort of busy in the sense of your work. You know, back in India, I was doing as a researcher, I was working in the office. But here, you know, obviously, there's no Tibetan research office, right? In Canada, nobody <laughs> will put up such a research. If you look at my resume, everything has to do with, uh, uh, with, with Tibetan issue or Tibetan struggle. So nobody has such sort of organization. So I have to work uh, as a general labor, like, like, like the rest of the people. So then I have to work and then I have to do my own research readings. So that's like the most uh, sort of... Uh, Probably the only difference that I see in my own personal life. But then if you talk about general sort of perspective, uh, here uh, the problem again is, uh, you know, the, the, the city is rich, of course. Uh, but the problem here is that uh, because it's so rich and people are so lost in their own world, there's not much sort of uh, appreciation for for the wealth and, 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 and the beauty that you are, you know, you, have, you possess here in Canada. I'm talking with general people. Yep. I, of course, I don't blame them because they don't have any sort of like alternative sort of worldview. You know? mm. Whereas people are coming from India, you know, for, for instance, to me, you know, the moment I see, um, say, for instance, a, a beautiful restaurant or if I get a chance to eat in a restaurant, I just feel so much gratitude. You know? For like a few seconds, I'll stop myself and say, like, enjoy and relish, you know, without eating the food. Mm. You know? yeah. <laughs> but here, you know, since they don't have gone through the the... the, the, the the struggle that we went through, the people don't really appreciate, which is which is very sad. I call it uh, often, uh, jokingly call it poverty of the plenty. You know? There's so much <laughs> you're not able to appreciate. But well, you know, in India, you know, right? We know that, right? Yeah. You get a little bit of like good things, then you really cherish, and you know, that's that's the difference. And then, and then obviously, India, you know, I think uh, it's kind of more relaxed and, and laid back and. So, but here you have to really work, and uh, because the system is so sort of uh, 
uh, tied against the working class that you know you have to work paycheck to paycheck and if you don't uh, continue your work probably you'll be kicked out from your uh, rented rooms so yeah. being busy is not is not something that people enjoy it's just that they are being forced to do so that's the thing and since you mentioned paycheck to paycheck you know like uh, one thing that i notice maybe i'm wrong like you can you know put your thoughts on that but what i see with the tibetan community abroad is there is this sense of how should i put it like convenience should i say like let's say like today was an occasion like a pension rumbuches birthday but they tend to not celebrate on that day but they push it on a weekend you know like so what is your thought on that ningila yeah i mean probably you probably know probably you have your own answers in your question it's it's because of the, uh, the economic conditions right until unless you uh, uh, celebrate the, the, the festivals on saturdays you know it's then obviously if you don't do that you know, you'll lose your job so so that's more of an uh, an economic necessity uh, but i i mean this is not to be honest like you know there's no i mean it depends on timeless right you know i mean whether you organize on saturday or sunday who cares right? as long as you organize that's what matters yeah. but i think it's because of that yeah. so now like let's move deeper to the subject so as we all know like it's been more than a decade since his holiness the 14th dalai lama handed over the political authority to a democratically elected leader so what is your overview of the developing political climate in our diasporic community since then uh i think it's uh, it's a very sort of deep sort of profound sort of complex question as you know it um you know it's 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 very exciting to be honest uh given the political changes that we have seen over the last uh, few years because of his holiness's uh, withdrawal from uh, direct uh, political responsibility but at the same time it's also uh i would say kind of very fraught with a lot of uh, uh dangers you know uh, lots of crises that we have seen from our own eyes and i think it's i think right now i think it's very very important for tibetans to sort of like kind of sort of withdraw a little bit and then reflect and then try to have a very sort of open but honest internal conversation among themselves you know uh in other words what i'm trying to say is that uh, uh you know in the past you know it's it's a t- typical tibetan attitude you know when you sort of like openly talk about things like in publicly and they'll not mention you know the drawbacks and the and the crises and the problems but when you close your doors and then when you you know on your private lives they people will talk about you know um, all the problems and and people will talk. so my Uh, hope and my appeal is that it's time now for Tibetans to open up and talk these things publicly. But it's a, it's a big challenge, you know. You know, you know. I mean, these are being publicly talked about right now in social media and in the parliament. But there has to have a, a way to talk, you know. Rather than right now, as you know, it's it's more of yeah. a sort of Trump style, like being you know trying to. Mm-hmm. muscle each other out and, and you know not in that sense but you know i'm talking about diplomacy but not in a, in a negative sense but being open honestly talk about issues but in a more sort of gentle uh uh civil manner 
But we have to talk about the issues that we know mm. that is sort of buried under the surface. And uh, so it's my hope that, I mean, it's very exciting to be honest, you know, because now nobody can sort of like uh, avoid those issues. It has to be, it will come out in the public. There's no doubt about it. But the challenge, as I said, is how you're going to uh, articulate it. When we talk about democratic reforms, it's not just I'm talking about politically, I mean, democracy mm -hmm. cannot be uh, sort of uh, pigeonholed only into the uh, political structure. Mm -hmm. You can talk about democracy in your own offices, right? If someone is working in a hospital, whether the, the hospital is run democratically and creatively, in the schools, in the homes. And so there's so many things we can talk about. Mm -hmm. So, like, uh, I would like to ask about the parliament because one thing that I noticed, like, I went through the charter before our session here, like, uh, one of the criteria for eligibility was, like, you know, there was no particular mention of the level of education needed, you know, like, maybe it was set up way back, you know, the charter was formally, you know, published and printed out in 1991. Eventually, it got amended. But in a way, do you think that some changes are necessary on that level itself in our parliamentarians, you know, eligibility criteria, let's say, like in formal education. Because thinking back, like, uh, I mean, 20, 30 years back, like we could understand that Tibetans, due to the very plight that we were facing, a lot of the Tibetans had to skip school and work for Dharamsala. But that is not the case anymore. Right. So what is your thought on that, Nizala? I mean, it's a, it's a very relevant question, you know, because... I mean, whether it's in parliament or whatever in, in life, you have to be educated, right? Now, the question is like, uh, education can be of uh, different types. They can be formal and informal education. Some people are formally very educated, may have big degrees, but they can be really stupid, right? Yep. Whereas uh, some people may not even know how to read and write, but can be very wise. Mm. And if you look at uh, Tibetan history, you know, Gartongsen is supposed to be I mean, he's a hero and he just built the Tibetan Empire, but there's this story that he he was an illiterate guy. So the question, you are right, you know, people have to be wise and educated. And again, your point is correct, because uh, like if you, for instance, like in the parliament or, or whether in the bureaucracy, you know, you have to, apart from the fact that you know about Tibetan and Tibetan culture, Tibetan language, Tibetan history, I think you should also know about English as well, so that you can read about what's happening in other parts of the world. Right. Indeed, uh, indeed. So in that sense, you know, you're right. But uh, but then, as I said, like if you really formally put up in a, a criteria saying that somebody has to have a degree, MA degree or BA degree to be eligible to be uh, a member of that that can probably have some issues. As well. They might kick out some really modern day god like people as well some really wise who doesn't know english was very intelligent people you know yep yep so that we have to think about that if you so whether we want to put a formal sort of criteria or not but you're right on on uh, on the spot when you say that education is very important so i mean like that's that's what i'm saying if somebody uh that, that is why i often tell people say for instance uh why don't you translate uh, some of the wonderful works on tibetan struggle saying say for instance on, on international relations itself uh, by uh, papers by uh, for instance papers by Dava Nobu, you know or books by him into tibetan you know you have like a bunch of uh, tibetans who are good in both english and tibetan and i see now it's beginning 
some of the works by Eliot Spalding has been translated into Tibetan. And if you translate these more works of these, and then obviously uh, those who doesn't speak English, they can have access to the knowledge through the Tibetan translation, and they can also promote Tibetan language as well. So even if they didn't go to college by reading the Tibetan, they'll get the insight, right? Yep. So it's about giving access to education that you're talking about. Definitely, Ninjala. You raised very interesting points. You know, firstly about how you know, like, what is the criteria of education itself? So I was pushing this thing, and in a way, you brought an interesting point out about Gartongzin, and maybe even there might be a lot of you know modern day Gartongzin here and there in our Tibetan community. We never know. And on top of this, like when it comes to Tibetan writers who have written on Tibetan, like their text should be translated in Tibetan so that the larger Tibetan audience can get access to it. So, yeah, very interesting. And I think we must work forward on that route itself, you know. Yeah. And also not just uh, writers, but even if you, as you said, if you observe an ordinary Tibetan, you know, whether someone is working in the restaurant or whether someone, I don't know, doing a sort of normal work, whether it's in settlements or everywhere in Toronto, people are very creative, you know. Mm. It's just that their voices are not being sort of uh, represented. So if you're a writer, I don't see any writer writing about an ordinary sort of um, quote-unquote normal Tibetan. And as he's saying that uh, the genius is to uh, bring out the extraordinary in the ordinary, you know? You see, like... Uh, Anyone, right? Someone sweeping the streets of uh, Gangki. You know, if you look at his or her life, there's a lot of creativity out there. And these things needs to be brought up. Right? Mm. Not just, of course, and then we have the sort of uh, high and the mighty sort of uh, academics. Their work can also be translated, and which is being translated as well. Right from the beginning, that's the Tibetan sort of history, right? The lots of hours, and they've been translating the, the, the works of the Indian philosophers and or what about the ordinary, bringing the extraordinary in the ordinary. Definitely, like I think we should, Tibetans should bring the subaltern voices, you know, like yeah. it's being blocked since now and I think there have been movements like... No, this, uh, that is why I'm very excited. I keep watching all these blogs, you know, no, they, they call it blogs, right? All these yeah. people, you know. Quote unquote, they're not they're really, it's wonderful. It's up, up. I mean, it depends on your eyes. I find them very exciting and extraordinary. I find beautiful stories, very genuine, very spontaneous. And the, the, the fact that it's videography is just beautiful, all the scenes, you know. This is just amazing, you know. The sub people don't see that. Yep. Because probably they, they have been so hooked on to all this, like, aura about, like, you know, big sort of writers and filmmakers that they don't even look up at it. They say, oh. But to me, you know, it's, it's very exciting. Coming back to the story that you and I talked about that in the pilot, we had a little story, yeah. no more restaurants. <laughs> it's how you look at it, you know. Indeed, like I think a lot of our Tibetan history, you know, in a way it's recorded through these blogs, you know, like now we might look at it differently, maybe say 10 or 20 years down the line. You know, in a way history is being visually recorded there, like. Tibetan yeah. history, that too. Yeah. So very interesting. So I'm, I'm, I'm. That, that is what I'm saying. With the rise of social media and the and the withdrawal of the, his oldest from political scene, you know, all this like the storms, you know, I, I, I find it very exciting. 
indeed, Ninde, indeed. And now, you know, you, you have been a researcher and you continue to research on Tibetan and Tibet-relating things. And, you know, even I've read a few of them, including, you know, the censorship and struggle for Tibetan independence and the heart of the matter, the latter of which I really appreciate reading. And I think the audience should also read it. And it's published on the popular Tibetan English e-media, Hayul. So in your view, Ningjala, what was the hardest challenge that you face and you continue to face when it comes to researching on your Tibet? And what are your thoughts on the sufferings that Tibetans in Tibet especially them, have to go through day in and day out? I think the uh, biggest challenge when I was uh, a so-called researcher or student of Tibet, when I was working in Damsala, was uh, the inability to articulate, you know, what you really feel. It's very difficult. So I'll tell you, you know, you, you asked me about what you think, what I think about this. The suffering inside Tibet. For instance, uh, at the office that I used to work, we used to interview certain uh, political prisoners from, from inside Tibet. And I remember uh, there was this uh, very sort of giant sort of man. You know, he, I think he endured probably four or five years in the labor camp. And he talked about all the, 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 the struggles that he went through uh, in the labor camp. And, 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 and strangely, at that time, I was reading um, Solzhenitsyn's uh, uh, work on, on, on labor camps in Russia at the time. So, so all of a sudden, like, uh, once I finished my work at five and I went to the, to McLeod Gunch and right in the streets, all of a sudden, I just had a, had a sort of uh, emotional sort of breakdown. You know, I just couldn't control tears. Like I was sort of crying, you know. So emotionally, it's very draining. So what I mean by that is that probably at that time, I was not able to sort of... Uh, Sort of, sort of differentiate or, or reconcile, you know. Of, of course, like whether it's Solzhenitsyn or a Tibetan uh, uh, um, political prisoner going through labor camp, this is, there's a similarity, right? Both are like both have like gulag systems and yep. both are communist uh, regimes. But then there's also a lot of differences as well. And probably I couldn't sort of figure out, you know, the nuances, the differences. That's why I had a sort of meltdown. In other words, what I'm saying is that it's very difficult for a Tibetan because you are deeply emotionally involved into the struggle yourself and at the same time do research. You know, uh, that combination, you know, um, it's very difficult to uh, possess the combination where you can be emotionally involved, but at the same time you can be mentally strong as well. That is like the most difficult challenge. Otherwise, it's, if it's a foreigner doing observing on Tibet, probably it's, it's easier for them because they are not personally involved. For a Tibetan, it's very difficult. Indeed, Ningjala, like uh, being a Tibetan, you know, especially looking through it from your own lens, like looking what your ancestors and even your, you know, generation a bit older than you, what they've gone through and talking with them, it's very difficult. And as you mentioned, we tend to not tend to we become emotional and I think we should accept that as well. It's not like a negative it's, point which no. a lot of people tend to connotate yeah. with it. But... No, no, no. The emotion is a, uh, is a source of strength. Hmm. You know, I was talking about if you could sort of uh, can be emotionally sort of involved at the same time you can be mentally strong sort hmm. of reconcile this then the expression that you will make, nobody can sort of surpass that. Then, then you will see a Tibetan 
maybe things fall apart chenwa ache be you know so um the emotional thing is 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 a source it, it can be a source of sort of strength so you, you we cannot sort of like look down upon it or undermine it indeed ningje and i definitely echo the sentiments that you shared here and you know recently like uh, tibetans throughout the world have uh, remembered and commemorated the uh, 64th anniversary of the tibetan uprising day on 10th march so what do you think the message it sends you know even after 60 years and do you think in a way the younger generation are really able to get something from it because the uprising day in a way not only is a way of protest but it also brings tibetans from all of walks of life together that's what i witnessed when i saw the protest and took part in it recently at delhi yeah i mean of course it's march 10 is the the, the day when when asa you know the tibetan capital was uh, fell down and then we became refugees so it that's the day uh, we became rootless right and i used to when i seek leave on march 10 from my uh, manager you know i used to text them saying that uh, this is the day i lost my father you know? <laughs> she she took it very personally and then i explained her the reason you know? so you have no choice as a tibetan you know whether you are directly involved in it or not this is going to affect you and march 10 obviously is the symbol you know So now the choice is up up to you whether you want to you you want to find a way in which you want to actively involve whether it's in march 10 or or in your daily life as a tibetan you know the the, the fact that we talked about right mm. you know you already know tibetan language very well but then whether you want to study english and then try to you know learn new insights and knowledge from the outside world and then live fully as a tibetan or If you don't do that, it's going to affect you as well. You will suffer from alienation. You'll go through uh, emotional traumas, and you know. And then I see it everywhere as well. But the good thing about the Tibetans is that uh, exiled Tibetans are quite thriving. You know, and one of the reasons is because the moment we reach exile, His Holiness and the Indian government, the Nehru, they established the Tibetan schools. where we learn tibetan language tibetan history and then we also learn english and now as you know all these younger generations going up these are bilingual educated uh, young tibetans so they already have the base and i see them you know, doing quite well you know in daily life here at the workplace you, know, you have tibetans and the impression is very good and the coworkers among the foreigners they say oh you guys are really sincere hard working people um but as i said there's also a lot of like uh, lapses you know this laid back to bad attitude for instance if they organize some festivals or or or, or talk shows they organize it well, but they you always find something you know missing you know and and it's because of the uh, the, the the laid back attitude and so if we can pull that up and then try to live fully then i think uh, it's it's a wonderful uh, sort of opportunity and then it, it's very nice to see uh, lots of passion among the tibetans as you said uh, on march 10 i was there yesterday it was the uh, stormiest and the coldest 
uh, Marston, uh, even in, 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 in Canada, is really cold, full of snowstorms. And then we started walking and and then I started young people screaming and protesting. And then the slogan that I heard about you know, China, get out of Tibet, you know, in unison, you know, it was wonderful to hear. And then in the streets, it was nice. Normally, you know, nobody talks about uh, Tibetan freedom, right? Everybody suppresses that. Mm -hmm. the, uh, the top political sort of establishment or but on that yesterday on the street when from thousands of people screaming it was very nice I, I was i was really enjoying looking at the faces of the bystanders which is foreigners you know because these are the people who are their own government are uh, denying uh, the right to Tibet freedom it's, it's very nice to see you know a group of tibetans thousands of them screaming in their faces the truth that has been suppressed Indeed, Ningja, and those slogans as well, like China, 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 out, 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 you know, like the message that it's carried, like it may sound simple to an extent, but it's very potent and very strong. And especially if you, uh, the, the, the chanting or the, the slogan, if you it's done in a unison, you know, mm. crescendo, and it's, it's especially led by young people, it's very nice. Indeed, Ningja. So, like moving on from the 10th March uprising day, like uh, focusing on China itself, like it's a known fact that the People's Republic of China this year is being tested on all fronts. And many are even optimistic that an eventual change now looks more possible than ever. What are your thoughts on China and its current predicament? And also on top of this, like right now, the so-called two sessions of the PRC is underway and I think Xi Jinping, you know, formally was announced as the president for an unprecedented third term. So how do you think all of this will influence PRC's governing in Tibet? To be honest, uh, now, as you know, the Chinese have become so powerful, right? It's, it's I mean, it's the world's uh, manufacturing sort of hub. And if you look at uh, the economic relations that China has with other countries all over the world, you know, every country, uh, their largest trading partner is China. So, under such scenario, I think uh, probably we need to sort of have a different sort of uh, perspective, you know, a paradigm shift in terms of how we look at China. Obviously, the Chinese will continue uh, uh, suppressing or undermining the Tibetan uh, dreams for freedom or independence. Obviously, the Chinese will continue that. But at the same time, <clears throat> I think the Chinese are sort of like right now inside Tibet, they're, they're kind of very smart. You know, if you look at uh, how they uh, use their you know, skills in, 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 in sort of neutralizing the Tibetan struggle. You know, they are very rich and then they have all the technologies. You know, there's a huge military inside Tibet. You cannot move an inch. The moment you, for instance, try to send an email, no, not email, sorry, send, send, try to send some money, you know, you'll be caught and put in prison. So it's, it's a very difficult. But on the other hand, uh, you know, the Chinese allow if the Tibetans uh, do some gorshes, you know, and if they go and go on a pilgrimage and prostate, you know, they'll allow that. But then the moment, you know, the, somebody tries to write a serious article or a poem, or if somebody displaces always the Dalai Lama's, Dalai Lama's picture, you'll be you know, cracked down. So the Chinese have this option now. You know, mm -hmm. to play that game, that, that long game. 
so this is something we have to take, uh, keep in our mind. You know, I see young Tibetans inside Tibet making blogs again about how he travels all over Tibet to beautiful places, to pilgrimage sites, and talk to ordinary Tibetan people. So these are like, as I said, a new sort of, you know, uh, challenges that we have, a new perspective we need. And then again, you talk about the, the recent uh, sort of uh, the, the NPC, you know, National People's Congress, but that's more of a rubber stamp parliament. But we know what happened out there. Uh, I read the reports yesterday, and for the first time, the, the, the Chinese president has openly acknowledged or accepted the so-called uh, the great power computation thrown at him by the, by the American you know, government. And uh, so it looks like there's this open sort of uh, acknowledgement that the Chinese and the, the, the West led by the Americans would have a sort of confrontation. And obviously, the key uh, issue is, is Taiwan, as you know. And I was reading uh, yesterday, I was watching news about uh, American intelligence, top inter intelligence officials addressing the Senate, you know. And, and in, in, in that uh, interview, uh, the, the intelligence czar of the Americans, Avril Haynes, has openly acknowledged that uh, the, the, the one China policy with regard to the Taiwan is almost over. So, as you said, you know, there's this, there's a lot of sort of, uh, the Americans are trying to put pressure on the, on the Chinese through military alliances. But the problem is that the, what about the, the economic sort of uh, pressure? The Chinese are putting economic pressure back on the Americans. Mm. And without a strong economy, how can you uh, continue the arms race? You know? Because you need money. Uh, so, but as I said, the Taiwan is like something is really dangerous and probably in three, four years, I don't know, something will happen. The question is, obviously the Chinese will, will take Taiwan back and whether the Taiwans can resist or not, the Americans will intervene, will able to intervene. So that's, it's, it's a very sort of dangerous part. And then if that happens, then obviously, you know, right, what will happen. The big, big crisis all over the world. And for Tibetans, as I said, you know, uh, we need a sort of different sort of perspective. Sort of like more sort of, we can't have that typical, that old school sort of, you know, paradigm. The world has changed a lot. Even inside the Tibetan community, we changed, right? We saw it in exile, right? So it, it is my uh, hope that uh, the Tibetan intellectuals can sort of open up to this sort of new sort of changing environment and then try to and in, in our case, like, I think it's, it's a great opportunity, to be honest. You know, we speak three languages, right? This, we know English and then we know Tibetan. So through Tibetan, you can learn about your own civilizing history. You can draw stand from there, from Tibetan songs, Tibetan history, Tibetan literature. And then from English, obviously, you can learn about the world. So we have this sort of like a dynamic perspective. Here, like in the, in the West, it's just sort of unilateral perspective. As I said in the beginning of our interview, they only see about the West. So they, they don't know what's happening on another part of the world. But whereas, you know, you and I, we saw what's happening in, 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 in the global South, and then we know what's happening in the West. It's like having two choices. Then we, we can sort of be more sort of creative. But we have to take advantage. But that's the thing, you know.
If we don't take advantage, if we go on the, the usual way of things, then then people will take advantage out of, out of us. Indeed, Ningjala, you mentioned a very pertinent point about, you know, like how times have changed and we Tibetans also should not only move along with the time, but use the, you know, the dynamic aspect that we have gained, you know, of being multilingual and bilingual in that sense, and also having the perspective of both the global south and global north. So, indeed, I also feel like what you say, like we should definitely move across that path and continue on that and not be left behind to a certain degree. Because in some ways, that was one of the major reasons why we Tibetans, unfortunately, you know, lost our nation, lost our territory because we were not able to keep up with the time. And like going along this line itself, like I would like to ask you, like what sort of Tibet do you see, let's say, 20 years down the line? Uh, I think it depends. Uh, I, I, to be honest, uh, you know, when you talk about Tibet now, it's not just inside Tibet, right? You have the Tibetan diaspora as well. Uh, in 20, line, 20 years down the line, His Holiness will probably will not be there. Uh, so this is something we have to think about. Again, you know, uh, if you want to see any changes, then you should be able to make the changes, right? The changes will not happen on its own. It also depends on outside circumstances as well, right? Uh, it also depends on yourself, how you're going to change structurally. As I said, how you're going to change your mindset and prepare for it. <clears throat> so, uh, so what I'm trying to say is that it is up to the Tibetans what changes they want to see and whether they are willing to make those changes as well. Now I see many campaigns among the Tibetans in exile talking about uh, more parliamentary reforms, structural reforms in the, in the, in the exile Tibetan democratic setup. I mean, his honest has already begun. He talks about secular ethics now, right? He doesn't talk yeah. about next life and he talks about secular ethics. He talks about separating religion from politics. That's the broader framework, but now you have to go into the institution and actually make the changes. And that will spill over, right? In the form of whether uh, the changes we'll see in the Tibetan schools, you know, in, in the parliament, in day-to-day -day life. And that will empower the Tibetans. And, that, and then probably a change will come. Otherwise, it's very difficult to say, you know, uh, if people don't make the change, how can I like say? Or it, then there will be no change. It will be the same thing after 20 years. Yeah. So... Uh, inside Tibet, that change has been coming in you know, for a long, long time uh, among the Tibetan intellectuals. You, nowadays, yesterday, I saw many people raising the, the play card uh, of uh, Sheriff Gyatso, a Hmong intellectual who is in prison right now. If you read his works, uh, his published works, his books, he's talking about all the things that I'm talking about. Uh, one, of, one of his works, uh, uh, the, the Spirit of Nalanda, is actually published by the Library of Tibetan Works and Archives. And if you read the preface that he wrote in that work, he exactly talks about that. You know, he, uh, the, 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 the need for the Tibetans to make their changes. And it's, it's, I see sprouts of changes, you know. The, the, as I said, the, the big frame was there. And now the Tibetans will actually go out there and make the changes. It depends on that. Indeed, Ninjala, you mentioned a very pertinent point about, you know, Gosherab Gyatso and his writing and his current predicament as well. It's very sad to see such a, you know, a very high intellectual who is capable of a lot of things, you know, but is 
in a way behind bars because of his own expression. So it's very sad to see that. So Ninjala, we are short on time, unfortunately. So I would like to put forth this last question to you. And that is like whether you have any messages to our fellow Tibetans and the plethora of Tibetan supporters around the world who continue to stand in solidarity with the Tibetans when it comes to the Tibet-China conflict. Um, I, I can't speak much uh, for the Tibetan supporters because these people are really... They, they, they are free and independent people, right? So I don't have any advice to them. So they're very good you know, in whatever things they are doing. And and when I read about their statements, their general statement is that whatever the Tibetans do, you know, whatever options they make, they, they're going to support that. And as I said, like, personally, they are very uh, well-established and very challenging. So I don't have any... But to the Tibetans, especially I can probably, since this is about the youth, you know, I can probably say something about the so-called older people I can say much because they're older and they're wise uh, for the youth as I said uh, it is a great great opportunity for the Tibetans especially in diaspora people talk a lot about what's happening inside Tibet that's too far right and even if you want to do something about Tibetans inside Tibet first you have to be strong right so first work on yourself and in exile I know there are so many distractions and crises but then also there's a lot of opportunities. I'm talking about especially uh, the youth. Everybody has a chance to go to school, right? Everybody knows how to read and write. And then once you finish your school, all the facilities are out there. You know, the libraries are out there. You don't go hungry, right? You have enough to eat. The libraries are there to read. And then once you arm yourself with education, you will find a way out. I, I, I very much regret when I was in the college. Although I was one of the, probably the most studious, suppose <laughs> the most studious Tibetan student, but I regret a lot because I wasted a lot of time. Most, the biggest regret that I had was I did not work actually. Probably I should have worked in, in a restaurant, you know. On the, one, on the one hand, I should read, study, and on the other hand, I should, work in, I should have worked in a restaurant, which is what most of the youth here are doing. So probably I think if you're a college student in Delhi, you'll get a sort of a normal, decent job, right? Any kind of job you should do. And then obviously you go to college and read. There's an opportunity. Many people don't have that opportunity in India. Can you know, right? In India, how many people have a chance to go to school and, and leave alone college, go to school? Seventy percent of Indians are living in rural areas, and and you know I, I came from Indian rural area. There's no primary school. Even if there's a school, the food is not good enough. There's no nutrition. But the Tibetans have everything. So if if they realize how sort of uh, lucky, uh, how much office they have, and if they take it, and they can fly and you know <laughs> do wonderful things. So this is my appeal. I know, I know it's, I've been appealing this all the time, but it's very difficult because there's so many distractions, YouTube and... Indeed, Ninjalad. Thank you for sharing with us this wonderful, you know, wonderful messages. And especially the, at the end, you really brought out a very much needed echo for our Tibetan youngsters, how there is a plethora of opportunity to us. So it's only upon us whether we take it or not. So on that note, I would like to end our session today and would humbly and kindly like to thank our guest today, 
Ninjala for taking time out, out of his own life to, you know, come to our podcast and share his thoughts on Tibet. Thank you so much. Thank you, Ramdi. Thanks for having me. And I'm, I'm very happy that you're doing wonderful things. And, uh, you, know, we had, you know, in the beginning of our conversation we had, I asked about, you know, what school did you go and what are your plans? And, and I, I'm, I'm very much inspired by what you said, that you want to continue you know, doing studies. And so this is exactly what the young people should do. So thank you very much. That's all. Thank you. <laughs> Bye. For more updates and videos via Fenrir, click on the link and please subscribe to our channel. Thank you for watching.